Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Ross Dowdad is with us today, who, as the saying goes, uh, needs no introduction, certainly not to First Things audiences. He's a columnist for the New York Times and author of many, many things, including the book The Decadent Society, which we discussed here on the podcast uh, many, many moons ago. His latest book is something quite different. It's called The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery, our topic today. Welcome, Ross. Uh, it's great to be back, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, your, your opening describes a bedroom, a desk, and a strange box with cords and metal tubes. Now, I don't want you to describe what that is, Ross. Not yet. Uh, maybe we should just leave that scene for for our audience who who want to who want to go out and buy the book uh, real fast. It's a, it's a tease. It's a tease. <laughs> it's a, it's yes. a tease. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But um, it's it's a very powerful opening because it is a, a little bit mysterious uh we don't quite know what's going on just as a compositional point yeah what, what was that the point it's a, not only for us right here but as you write the book you're you're thinking differently because this is a memoir and that takes a different kind of writing than the usual writing that you've done was that a big shift is that why you do something like put this this little immediate scene right in medius race uh, in the book? I mean, honestly, it was my father's idea, that scene. <laughs> okay. He read, you know, you, you when you write a somewhat intimate book that engages in a little exposure of your own life and your family's life, you naturally show it to some members of your family. Um, and my father's reaction was, I think you need a hook. You need to sort of drop the reader into this, the strangest parts of the story for just a minute at the very beginning, uh, before you sort of pull back and start telling the story in a more straightforward, here is how I, New York Times columnist, came to grief in the wilds of Connecticut kind of way. Yeah. Um, so that's, 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 where it, that's where it came from. And I think he was right. I, I hope he was right, because it's how the book starts. Well, you know, with these kinds of choices, it does it work or doesn't, does it not work? It works. And, and we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. For, for, for now. All right. Uh, we, we can be then chronological. What happened on a rainy morning in 2015 and you felt a little uh, swelling on your neck? So we had, my wife and I had just uh, essentially put in an offer and done the inspection on a rural, rambling, multi-acre 1790s farmhouse in Connecticut. Um, we were living in Washington, D.C. at the time. We were both from Connecticut and had this idea we were going to 
escape and raise our family in splendid rural isolation. And that morning, we were in D.C. We had just come back from Connecticut from the housing inspection. And my wife came into the bedroom with a positive pregnancy test. She was pregnant with our third child, my son. And it was, you know, an incredibly exciting moment and sort of excitement piling on excitement. We had this new dream house. We were moving. We were going to have a third child. And there was just this one slight issue, which is that I had a weird red swelling on my neck that I hadn't hadn't noticed before and didn't know what it was. And so this was sort of the the tipping point, the moment, I guess you could say, when hubris, <laughs> the hubris of the professional class couple with their bright plans for their life starts to meet the nemesis of a very, very strange illness. Yeah. You, uh, not, too, not too long after, went to a doctor. Uh, what was the initial diagnosis? The initial diagnosis was that it was a boil, which would basically clear up on its own. And in fact, it did clear up uh, within... I'm not sure, maybe within a week, there was no swelling there anymore. Uh, but what the sequel then was a kind of stiffness in the neck, a sort of mild discomfort, and then slightly weird feelings in my head, mild pain around my jaw. And this went on for a few weeks, and it was mild enough that you could sort of say, well, maybe I'm imagining it, or, you know, it's just, it's, it's something that's not serious that, you know, will just some weird sequel of the boil that will disappear quickly. And then there came a point when suddenly it became something more severe. It was like whatever defenses my body had up suddenly collapsed. And I was having sort of just in one night, these kind of full body chest pain, vibrations, dizziness, you know, my bowels emptying the whole this this whole range of things happening all at once. And, and Ross, this this hit you. Well, it got this escalation took place. Actually, how many weeks after you first noticed the 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 swelling on your neck? Did it probably? Did it, yeah, probably two and a half, probably two and a half weeks, something. Okay, something like that. Okay, okay, and. That, of course, forced, did that force a, a, another visit to the doctor? Yeah, it forced an emergency room visit at okay. uh, 5 a.m. because I had tried to sleep. And, you know, in that kind of situation, you sit up Googling panic attack, heart attack, stroke, you know, every <laughs> everything that you imagine this can be. Right. And at a certain point, yeah, I went, I went to the ER. Um, they did blood work. They ran tests. They said I seemed fine. Uh, the sort of wave, the feeling of being swept under by this weird wave receded somewhat. Uh, and I went home and just sort of hoped and prayed that it would just sort of, whatever it was, that it would just go away really quickly. And it did not. And instead it became sort of entrenched in a way where I felt mildly ill, like the way you feel sort of in the last day of a, of a fever or, or flu. And then punctuating that general malaise was sort of this migratory pain that was in my shoulder, it was in my foot, it was in my throat. It would hmm. just vary day after day after day. And so did, and as it varied, so did the doctors that I saw. So over this summer where we were 
still in Washington, D.C. We had bought the house in Connecticut, but we weren't moving till August. I probably went to, you know, 10 doctors in in eight weeks looking for looking for different kinds of help and um, basically finding very, very little. Now, uh, you, you do talk about the things that prompt the emergency room visits. They were, it wasn't so much the pain. It was, it was the chest, pain in your chest. So as you say, you thought, this is a heart attack. This is, this is a stroke. I've got to get in there. And the emergency room personnel, you know, as soon as they hear chest pain, they rush you inside. When they saw, okay, this is not a heart attack. I mean, did they do an EKG kind of thing and see, no, the heart is, the heart is beating regularly. What did, did, did you see in their faces some kind of, well, we don't know. I mean, uh, well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's, yeah, you get, you get a certain kind of, of sympathy, but the basic, the basic reaction is, your heart is fine. Um, you're young and healthy. We've done a basic blood workup. You seem okay. And, you know, at, at a certain point, I think at the, so there were later emergency room visits. There were a couple on a trip we took to Pittsburgh where I had just tremendous chest pain while we were driving over the Appalachians. Um, and then there was another one in DC later. And, you know, at some point, once they prescribed me beta blockers, I think, um, you know, to sort of lower your heart rate. And but I think the assumption is that their assumption and not a universal, but very common assumption among the doctors I saw was that this was stress related, psychological, psychosomatic um, and that, you know, that maybe I had an anxiety disorder brought on by who knows what working too hard you know, having too much happening in my life at once. That was sort of the default that doctors turn to for, you know, for understandable reasons. If their basic screening for sicknesses doesn't turn up anything very quickly. One of the themes in the book isn't only your your physical suffering, but your entry into a, a system, you know, the medical system, which has a very hard time with this particular ailment. I mean, how long did it take before they were able to pin it down what it is? I mean, you talk a lot about the diagnosis of of Lyme disease and those five different factors. Uh, How did things start to narrow down? So there were, there are sort of two two stages within the system, right? So the first stage is when I'm in DC, when I'm in Washington, DC, the doctors just don't have any idea what's going on. And the sort of end point of my doctor visits in DC was being sent to a psychiatrist and talking to the psychiatrist and having them say to their great credit, uh, look, this doesn't sound like a psychiatric illness. This sounds like a physical illness and you need to keep looking for a physical cause, right? Um, but there was, so in, in DC, it was basically, you have tested negative for everything, but everything, including Lyme disease, because this was, I grew up in Connecticut. I was aware of the existence of Lyme disease. It was something I asked to be tested for probably. Um, and then you go to Connecticut where doctors see Lyme disease very frequently. You know, it's a disease of the American Northeast and to some extent the American Midwest as well. 
And in Connecticut, the doctors say, well, look, you know, you, the CDC recommends for a positive diagnosis for Lyme disease that these five bands activate in the presence of antibodies. But we see on your tests that three of those bands are activating and you have all these terrible symptoms that sound like Lyme disease. So you probably have Lyme disease. So you, that, that getting over that hump to, to the, you know, you probably have Lyme disease diagnosis, that happened as soon as we had moved. So in a, after a, three or four months after I got sick, I had doctors who would say, you probably have this problem. But then the second problem, right, is that there are two ways to have Lyme disease. You can have Lyme disease the way 80%, 85% of people have it, where it feels horrible, but if you take a course of antibiotics, you feel better and it usually doesn't recur. Um, or you can have what appears to be a more entrenched form where a course of antibiotics maybe helps you a little bit, but doesn't actually roll the disease back. And this second form is a sort of zone of tremendous controversy because a large portion of the medical establishment thinks, well, in effect, they're sort of agnostic. They say, we don't know what's going on with people who have the chronic form of Lyme disease. We're not convinced they still have Lyme disease. We think that they maybe have an autoimmune condition brought on by the Lyme disease, or that, again, that they have some kind of psychogenic illness where they are, you know, they, they had Lyme disease, but now they are sort of imagining that the symptoms persist when they don't. Um, so that, that view means that if you present yourself to a doctor and say, look, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease, I treated myself, or I was treated for it for four to six weeks, I'm not better. The doctor says, well, then there's nothing more we can do. You need to just wait for your body to recover. We can prescribe you some, you know, maybe some pain medication, maybe some antidepressants. Um, but you sort of fall into the same category as things like chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, these terms that are given to chronic illnesses that are not well understood. And then there's a minority of doctors, especially in the Northeast, who say, wait a minute, if somebody gets sick, we, you treat them and they don't get better, they probably just still have the same illness, <laughs> right? You probably just haven't gotten rid of it. And so you need to treat them longer term. And that is basically where I ended up because I tried the, you know, wait and see, wait, wait to get better. And all that would happen when I went off antibiotics was that I would just quickly get much, much worse and the phantom heart attacks would come back and so on. And so at a certain point, I would like to tell you that, you know, I read all the scientific papers and followed, chased the scientific debate down and determined that the outsider theory is correct and the insider theory is not. And that's true. I did do all of that. I did read all the papers and the arguments. But the reason, the real reason, obviously, that I thought the outsiders were correct was that when I took antibiotics, I stabilized. And when I went off them, I got worse. And so it seemed like they were doing something important. And if they were doing something important, it probably meant the disease was still there. And so that was, in the end, how I ended up treating myself. And over an extremely long period of time, how I slowly began to get better. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. 
Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, th- there are interesting episodes where you, you do a little self-medication. You, you, you take over the, the treatment of yourself. Were there, you say you went to a, you, they started saying psychiatry time. Did you, well, two questions. One, did you think maybe this is all in my head? And when you did yeah. go to the psychiatrist, what did the psychiatrist tell you? So yes, absolutely. I, I, I mean, you know, there, there are ways in which it can be a relief to, to tell yourself something is in your head, right? The problem is then it doesn't go away. But if you say, you know, there, there are moments when you think, well, it would be better if this was a psychosomatic, psychogenic illness, because then, you know, I could figure out a way to, you know, sort of improve my mental health in some some way and and get better. Whereas having having a debilitating disease that no one can identify, but that feels like a real disease is in certain ways more terrifying. So there were certainly moments when I kind of latched on to the it's anxiety, it's stress diagnosis. Um, and e- even to the point where, you know, I would sort of, well, you, you mentioned the psychiatrist, right? So I went to two psychiatrists in the early phase. The first one in Washington, D.C. told me he didn't think I had a psychiatric condition and I didn't believe him. I said, look, I'm committing to this diagnosis. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to act like I have an anxiety disorder, even though you, the psychiatrist, are telling me I'm not. Um, that didn't last very long because <laughs> the physical symptoms were so overwhelming that you end up getting sort of pushed back to physical diagnosis. But then when we moved to Connecticut, I saw another psychiatrist early on, and she, she said, Ross, I see people like you all the time. You obviously have a tick-borne illness. Like there was just sort of no question in her mind. And she said, look, you know, I'm happy to treat you as a psychiatrist. Um, You know, I'm sure you're having some mental health difficulties (laughs) amid your illness. But fundamentally, this is not a psychiatric disorder. This is clearly a uh, uh, bacterial, an infection of some kind. So I, I never saw a psychiatrist who tried to treat me for mental illness. I only Mm -hmm. saw regular doctors who told me I had a stress, anxiety, some, some kind of, some kind of disorder, which is itself very interesting. I think that contrast. You would go months without a decent night's sleep and you you got three kids at home now, uh, and, and this house situation, I don't know how you were able to function as you know, uh, a high-achieving columnist, writer, books are coming out. How did you? How did you manage day to day to get the work done? Well, so the good thing about being a columnist is that you don't have to go into an office. You don't have to present yourself um, to you know in a suit and tie, <laughs> participate in meetings. You can sort of strip the job down to its bare essentials, which is writing 800 words twice a week. Um, And for the most part, that was what I did. I still did some speaking and some traveling once I had stabilized a little bit. 
Um, and there were sort of ups and downs. There were periods when I could do that and then periods when things sort of fell apart more and I, and I couldn't like my, I did make an emergency room visit in Boston <laughs> at one point after, after an event at Harvard, I woke up the next morning, uh, you know, with horrible pain all around my neck and ended up, you know, going to going back to the emergency room. And of course there was nothing they could do for me and it all, the, the feeling receded and so on. Um, but in terms of like day-to-day, week-to-week life, you, yeah, you just sort of distill the job and you say 800 words twice a week. Uh, and I, for the most part, managed to do that. And there were ways in which my mind often was the only part of me that seemed to work, right? So it was like my mind was imprisoned in this body that was non-functional, always in pain. Um, but that meant at times it was kind of a relief to like, you would, it's almost like you would push your mind into, <laughs> into the column, into the Microsoft Word document, into social media even, and get a slight relief from the feelings in your body. Um, so it wasn't, I found it, you know, it, it was the one thing I was capable of doing. The other things like being a sort of normal, emotionally present husband and father were in fact actually harder in many ways than writing producing just that that bare bare eight a bare 800 words to fill the newspaper page yeah well we did an event in holland michigan i don't know if you remember it was some town hall thing sam Tannenhouse was there yes as well yes. this was i think in maybe mid or early 2017 and uh or maybe late 2017 and uh i actually we drove to the that airport. long ago I think it was within a year after Trump came in, I yeah. think. but it might uh, have been 2018. Maybe, maybe. But, but uh, this would have been at, at a very bad time for you. You, 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 were a, you, you seemed a little pale, but you, you held it together. I didn't... I didn't you, well, the, you, you, was, you hid I, I the think, pain, I think, pretty well. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I, I, this, I think this... So there was, there was sort of a tipping point in the in the book in the narrative and also in my my actual life where the first um 18 months i would say after the illness after this descent um i was just in terrible shape all the time and i couldn't figure out what to do to get better i would take antibiotics and i would be stable you know sort of stabilized but i would never improve and then there came a turning point when I figured out basically these weird combinations of multiple antibiotics at high doses combined with some herbs and enzymes yeah. that, you know, that actually started to give me some control over the illness. And at that point, um, I sort of moved to a place where, you know, I would have three bad days a week, but I would be, you know, in okay shape the other half of the week, right? No. So by, by the time of that event, I'm pretty Maybe. sure that it was sort of midway through the Trump presidency. And it yeah. was sort of, there were lots of days when I would be in pain, but not unbearable pain. And I could sort of do normal things in a more in a more normal way. The, the low point was the summer of, um, I guess it would have been the summer of 2016. Mm -hmm. So just before Trump was elected, when I was trying to do IV antibiotics as like this sort of, you know, <laughs> flood system, trying to get rid of everything. Yeah. And that made me worse in this way that is 
kind of characteristic of Lyme disease, where when you treat it, you get increases of symptoms, allegedly, as the bacteria die within your body. Yeah. That was the point at which I had a book contract, and I was pretending to write the book, but I wasn't. I took two months off from the column saying I was in order to write a book and just did nothing. That, that was when I would sort of wander the streets of this really nice New England town kind of in a stupor. And I was sort of the, you know, we would compare our situation to The Shining, right? We're, you know, trapped in this, this right. rambling house in the country with our kids. That was my like all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy kind of phase where I would sit there with an with a document to write and if I'd showed it to my wife she would have you know there would have been nothing on the page basically so Ross, after you're, that, you're, you're scaring us Ross sorry you're scaring us well it was scary I mean look it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, that's that's the thing like it's you know the I say this in the book but people who've read the book it, it there's a Stephen King element and for my wife right like you know, there's you have as the patient, the sufferer, you have your own forms of agony and, and despair. But to live with someone in that condition when you have yourself have three kids and have just or have just had, you know, our son was born close to one of my low points. And, you know, you're just not to not be sure yeah. of your own husband. Right. Where it's and like he he probably has this serious illness. He will probably get better from it. But every day his description of his symptoms changes, his theory of how to get better changes. And, and he's just not the man he was a year before. One thing that you do very well, Ross, is describe this entry into chronic pain and the community of chronic pain sufferers. There are people out there who had just had chronic pain all the time. And that this is the boundary line between you know, short-term acute pain and then chronic pain, it's, it's not just a, a, a line. It's another universe you go into. The world starts seeming different when you have daily, you know, wake up in the morning and here it is again. Uh, I think you, you, you impart that well in the book. Well, that good. I'm glad I appreciate it because that's, yeah, one of the goals, I think, of writing this, and there are several goals probably, but one is to, you know, try and explain to the extent you can explain to people who haven't been through something like this what it's actually like because you do have, I think there's this sense, or at least I had this sense, and I'm someone who have, you know, people with chronic illness in my own family. I, I sort of knew about the serious of, seriousness of chronic illness in an intellectual way. But it's until it happens to you, it's hard not to feel just like, uh, it's like, you know, oh, it's like a sort of Victorian fainting couch kind of thing where you're, everyone's tired and the chronically ill person is a little more tired. Everyone's has, you know, aches and pains and the chronically ill person, they're a little more severe. Um, yeah. And it's just not like that. It's no. just like the and everyone is different, right? Like I did. There are people who get chronic Lyme disease and get crippling exhaustion where they sleep all day. Right. And I wasn't I was the opposite. I had so much pain and discomfort that I couldn't sleep. Um, Megan O'Rourke, who's uh, the editor of the Yale Review, and she's she's written a book coming out next year about chronic illness. And she ended up getting, after much more time, a Lyme diagnosis like me. But she said that it would feel to her like every cell in her body was dissolving. Hmm. Um, 
and and that's it's just like it's just a much more sort of profoundly unbearable experience basically than yeah. you can imagine until you've, until you've been through it and yeah it absolutely it changes it changes your perspective on obviously sort of what suffering is like it changes your perspective on the medical system and you know you just become inevitably a more fringe personality i think um you know which can be dangerous right the the problem with becoming a fringe personality is that you reject too much like of the establishment the establishment does have wisdom it does know things right um and you embrace you know you find other authorities to serve that are in, in their own way just as fallible as the cdc so it's I, i'm not trying to make a case for living on the fringe i'm just saying that when something like this happens you you know you you get pulled in that direction yeah. without inevitably there is also uh, apart from the, the self descriptions there's also a lot of information in the book why is it called Lyme disease and it's not l-i-m-e it's not l-i-m-e and it's not lyme's disease either which is what what people often often call it and when it's for some reason that always is like fingers on a chalkboard to me i'm like no it's lyme disease but you know of course it, it doesn't really matter it's named for uh, lyme and old lyme connecticut which are two very lovely towns um about uh, 45 minutes east of where we live now in New Haven uh, on the Long Island Sound. They're great places to spend a weekend, uh, antiquing, you know, art galleries, all of that stuff. And uh, that's where the first cases were identified in the um, way back in the 1970s. And it in and that's where also, this these sort of early patterns were established where the doctor who really discovered it, a guy named Alan Steer, was a rheumatologist. So he was accustomed to treating autoimmune conditions. And so it was very natural for him to assume that people who were sick long term with this had an autoimmune disease rather than an active infection. And that sort of set the tone for, again, what became sort of the official medical knowledge view of Lyme. Um, but then from the beginning, there were also these other doctors who were saying, no, if you treat these, if you treat these people who seem to have chronic issues, they will gradually get better. So they should be treated. Uh, but this this has been going on basically since the 1970s. This 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 medical debate that's also this fraught kind of cultural polarization where you have, you know, patients who have this experience and feel like the medical establishment has failed them and a medical establishment that feels like, oh, man, you've got all these crazy people out there demanding antibiotics when, you know, we've already treated them. Um, and it's itself uh, it's itself just a kind of fascinating culture, culture of medicine case study and an example of how you can get polarization without Republicans and Democrats, Donald Trump and, you know, and, and uh, Kamala Harris. Right. You, you can. You can polarize a society just along a question like, how do you treat Lyme disease? Just itself sort of something that I had not contemplated until I got sick. And while moving into this place, Connecticut, where this is like a sort of subterranean culture war in the state. You, you mentioned the CDC a moment ago, and we'll, this will be our last question. Uh, you assess how the CDC has dealt with Lyme disease, and it's not 
very complementary. Uh, what what has that agency done? Well, so the CDC at a certain point in the 1980s set out diagnostic criteria um, for Lyme disease and treatment protocols, and you know they they went with the sort of official official medicine view, because that's what the CDC would do. And they said, look, you to get diagnosed with Lyme disease, you need sort of definitive, these definitive results from blood tests, these definitive symptoms like the bullseye rash around the tick bite, um, or, you know, arthritis and swelling in your knees. And then treatment is defined, the recommended treatment is just this narrowly defined four to six weeks of antibiotics. And, you know, there are good reasons why the CDC would do that. You you know you want you do want sort of specific diagnostic criteria to follow, right? Because, um, you know you you don't want to live in a world where everyone's getting diagnosed with Lyme disease when really they have lupus or multiple sclerosis or you know one of these one of these things that Lyme disease resembles a lot of other diseases, um, and. You know, medicine proceeds on this sort of first do no harm theory, right? So you don't want to overtreat. And obviously, there's a lot of discussion about how we use antibiotics too much. We overtreat with antibiotics. We help generate superbugs because of bacterial resistance to antibiotics. So at one level, all of the CDC's decisions were rational. The problem is because medicine in the US is bureaucratized in this profound way, once you make that choice, it then sort of determines just a host of things. It determines how doctors are trained, right? Sort of what they're told about Lyme disease in the brief window of time when they learn something about Lyme disease. It determines what kind of research grants, what kind of research gets funded and what doesn't. So research on Lyme disease is more likely to get funded if it takes for granted that you only have Lyme disease if you get a bullseye rash, like these kind of things. Um, and it determines what insurance companies will pay for, right? So if you present with a non-CDC-approved case of Lyme disease, insurance company isn't going to pay or is less likely to pay for your treatment. And with a condition that in this case has turned out to be much more varied and complicated and weird than a lot of doctors thought at the beginning, you're just creating inevitable incentives for large numbers of people, tens of thousands of people, to pretty clearly have some sort of serious sequel from tick-borne infection and not be able to get treatment at all. So like, you know, in this, in the case of Lyme disease, the blood tests are really bad. And people basically agree that the blood tests are bad, that, you know, they miss 50% of new infections. And even once you have like really advanced neurological Lyme where, you know, you're, you're totally falling apart, the blood test will still miss a quarter of those cases. And pe people know this, and yet, because there isn't a better blood test, the sort of bureaucratic method still says, well, you, ha you, know, you have to go by the blood test. You can't just be diagnosing willy-nilly. So that's, you know, and there are similarly, like not, like only half of Lyme patients get the bullseye rash, right? So there's, there's, there are all these ways in which medical systems that exist for good reason, right? It's not that it's irrational to have these like, don't overtreat, don't overdiagnose assumptions. In cases of chronic illness, especially, and in cases of illnesses that are hard to test for and hard to treat, the system just sort of falls apart and ends up like just, again, leaving a lot of people really helpless in the face of pain that 
you should be able to get doctors to treat. You yeah. should. There's much more in the book, including interesting profiles of some some real characters in the medical community, uh, as well as that <laughs> that 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 strange black box in that dark room. But the book is "The Deep Places: A Memoir of Illness and Discovery." Ross Douthat, thank you for joining us. Mark, thank you so much for having me. It was it was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.